0: You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Jill Morrow, author of the novel, Newport, on sale July 7th from William Morrow Books. Welcome, Jill. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Now, tell us if you can, I know you can't give away the enormously satisfying ending, but sort of set up the book Newport and and just sort of paint the picture if you can. Newport takes place
1: in 1921 and to really open the book, we join a lawyer and his assistant on their way to one of the Newport tiny cottages, which of course we know are are excessive in the extreme, where he's meeting with one of his oldest, richest clients who wants to change his will. And there are problems ahead, and I'm not sure how much you want me to tell you without well, giving I, it away. <laughs>
0: I think the other distinct fact about this book is that you, of course, have written a historical novel, and it's set set in 1920, but then you have the extra challenge and the extra interesting fact of flashing back, what, to the 1880s, right? So you follow this attorney and his previous... Um, time in Newport. And how many years earlier is it? It's roughly 20 it's years earlier, right? 1890s. Right. And so
1: it's approximately 21, 22 years before. And he has a story that he'd prefer remain hidden. But this trip
0: to Newport won't allow that to happen. So you have set yourself the challenge of having to research and depict, which you do marvelously, not one time period, but two. What what, what gave you this idea? What was I thinking? Yeah, right. what were you thinking?
1: <laughs> I, I actually like historical novels because I like research and I like being in that world. Um, I had, for fun, written in the 1890s before just to play, but 1921 attracted me for a lot of reasons. And I, I had never been in the 1920s and I was excited by it. So that's what I was thinking. I wanted his story to take place in 1921 because it's the the very tail end of that Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. In fact, it may even be a little after. And the 1890s are the height of it. And I liked the change that you get between the 1890s and, it, and 1921. Yeah,
0: there's such a remarkable difference. So now how, how long did it take you to write the book? I am not the fastest writer <laughs> in the world, so I would say it took me about a year. year oh my and a gosh, half. I think that is fast.
1: A lot of that's research to so, start. Th-
0: so, a whole, it, so just a year between research and actual execution.
1: Oh, let's add another six months. Make yeah, it a year goodness, and a half. my goodness, that's still. Mm-hmm. I
0: think that's still pretty speedy. Gee, I like you. <laughs> and again, I it, it was it was so interesting. There's the two time frames. There's the two stories. The multi characters and and. The action just keeps going right, 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 right to the end, and there's so many twists and turns. How do you plot? How do you sort of structure? How, what's your what's your well? Opinion
1: about it? <laughs> this book, I have to honestly say, when I started this book, I didn't know where it was going. Yeah, I I had started it for a number of reasons. What started me on Newport is I read a tidbit about Victoria Woodhull. Okay who ran for president, first woman candidate in the 1870s. But that's not what what drew me. What drew me is there was a little article about Victoria and her sister, Tennessee Claflin. And what they did is they became the first women stockbrokers on Wall Street in the 1870s. They had grown up. with a mother who followed the spiritualist movement and a father who was a con artist. So you can imagine what they became. And what they became as children were fake mediums and fake spiritualists. So when they started this business, they hooked up with Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was at the time mourning the death of his first wife. And he was an easy mark and he funded them. And so he funded this brokerage, and they used whatever feminine wiles they had to allow him to want to fund this. Yeah. Um, he was involved with Tennessee. Tenny is what she was called.
0: My daughter's name is
1: Tennessee. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, don't listen. <laughs> you don't want No, I'm fascinating. <laughs> I don't know this character yet. But there were those who felt that their success came because they would take wealthy businessmen lovers who would whisper their hints and their business acumen into their ears at, at vulnerable times, and then they'd pass this information on to, to the next person who came to get their services. So that's how, and I'm not saying that's true or false, because they had a lot of detractors. They were the only women on Wall Street. That but
0: is, I did not know this story.
1: But So that started me thinking, and, and part of that may be familiar in the plot, <laughs> if you've read Newport. But it started me thinking, what would it be like if there were people so desperate to survive, that this is something that they wanted to do, that they could make money, maybe feel that it wasn't quite as odious as as other things they could be doing, because these people had the money. It's not like they were robbing them or anything of that nature. So that was the first thing that started me thinking about Newport. The second thing was the realization that in 1921, there was a peak in spiritualism, because so many people had died during World War I and the influenza. and they
0: wanted wanted to talk. Yes. So they
1: were open to it. So those two pieces together gave me the background for a story, but I wanted people we would like in the story. And, And those are not particularly likable profiles. So I started listening to the characters. And the first character I heard was my lawyer, Adrian. And I just you asked so me how the plot listening came.
0: because you're listening like a spiritualist like a I medium know. right your, your characters
1: are speaking i know to you. i know and i know and it's not like i actually hear them so right.
0: I mean, but you, <laughs> but, that really, but that's interesting now let me ask you this is this do you normally know the endings to your books? Do you normally have an arc in your mind? Or, or or is this consistent with the way that you work?
1: This one was worse than usual in terms of having to jump without a net. I'm working on something now where for the first time in my entire life, I know where it's going. Yeah. I know the beginning. I know the end. There are points in most things that I write where I think, what am I going to do with this? Where is yes. this going to yeah. go? But I just try to trust the process
0: and keep and going. And I'm very interested in this when when authors talk this way when they say you know I, I listen to the characters, so you know I and then I automatically picture them you know taking long walks or you know sort of being in some kind of strange meditative state. But is that the case or is it just that you you sit down you work even if you know you're going to discard most of it and then eventually you know the the the. the the plot point comes to you? How how does it actually work? Well, there's a lot of cursing
1: involved. There's (laughs) there's a lot of procrastinating and doing laundry and, you know, making cookies and things like that. No, but actually, once you stop fighting it and you trust that something might happen, That's a good point, yeah. then I get better at it. Walks do help me at the risk of being a cliche. I do love taking walks. I wish I were a little more disciplined, but you have to give yourself permission to get it wrong. Yeah, and it's taken me a lot of years to realize that that's why they call it editing. You know, exactly. exactly <laughs> Give right. yourself permission to write something absolutely horrendous on the paper, read it back. I love to edit. I like the editing process almost better than the creation process.
0: So I'll try anything that gets it flowing. Yeah. Now, had you before you read this 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 article? had you had a general interest in spiritualism, and were you interested in mediums overall, or was this something sort of new to you?
1: I had the interest. I had some skeptical experience in my past. I wanted to use it because I think it's interesting. I also think it's people at their most vulnerable which make interesting characters. Yeah, and I always like the question of is this real or isn't it?
0: Right, and to whom? Because you know, as it is in the book, the medium can be appealing to more than one person, and everyone receives it differently. Yes, and then of course it changes, and you know everything else. So, so that's very interesting. Some historical novels often um, they focus on a, a specific event. And they, they give a backstory. And in this case, I, it was interesting because you just had these fully realized and complicated um, characters and you just set them in this time period. But I wonder if you were intentional about the income inequality and how fresh it felt in your novel that was depicting these time periods of 1920 and the 1890s and, and contemporary America. Was, was that an intentional way that you presented the story?
1: It wasn't intentional. It's a theme that, as I was writing, became more apparent to me. Every once in a while, I think every author does this, when you're writing, you can sit back and say, wow, that's really cool. And I didn't even realize it happened. Yeah. And then from there, it becomes more intentional because it's too good to leave there. You
0: have to use it. So I see. So it just sort of it became apparent. You were following the instinct, and it became apparent. And, and then you, you attended to it perhaps a little bit more closely. Yes, I think it's like knitting a sweater.
1: If you're not a very good knitter, you knit and you keep going, and all of a sudden it starts to look like something. Yeah. And that's amazing when that happens. I'm, I'm always surprised when that happens. And then you know, I'm knitting a sweater, so I need this, this, and this to make that happen.
0: So the book will be published in July 2015. You delivered it to HarperCollins when? Oh, yikes.
1: Hmm, I'm better at historical dates than that. <laughs> <Is> than <laughs> so I am at real life it, dates. <laughs> it probably
0: was a year ago. It possibly was. I I asked because I know you reside in Baltimore, yes. and it's been you know s- such a dramatic turn of events in Baltimore recently, and so I I, I almost wonder you know did in a weird way you know I, I sat right here with Laura Lipman, and you you know how Baltimore influenced her quite obviously, yes. but I wonder you know, if the exact same thing happened to you, you know, sort of living in that city with so much so much of this going on. It
1: didn't, I wish it would sound better if I could say it did, <laughs> but I was so entrenched in the era in which this book yeah. was written that that's not where my parallels came from. Okay. Some of my parallels came from the fact that I grew up in Annapolis which is very similar in texture to Newport. Newport's like Annapolis on steroids because okay. we, we have the seaport, we're just tinier. We're like the tiny cousin, the Naval Academy. We have uh, the Colonial District. We do not have the mansions. So for me,
0: that's where my parallels came from. I see, that makes sense. Okay, got it. Now, who are some of your first readers? Who do you deliver to first and foremost?
1: This book was lucky because this book went through some critique groups. Okay. And that I found extremely helpful. I would use critique groups all the time if I could. I can't anymore because of time constraints. Mm. When you work with a critique group, you're, you're feeding a few chapters when it's your turn, like maybe once a month, and it would take me till 2020 at this point. But it had the benefit of Eyes I Trust, and in general, the way it would work is if I feed a chapter and one person doesn't like something that's subjective, eh, maybe I can ignore that. But if everybody's saying the same thing,
0: i got to look at that a little more closely. And was this the first time? This is your third book, correct? Yes. And was this the first time you'd used a critique group? No. Okay. I had used them earlier as yeah, well. I, I, I often think that that's, that's a really smart thing to do. But I understand your point about timing. And how that can influence you know if you have to deliver by a certain date.
1: I'm also very fortunate that I have a sister-in-law who's an excellent reader. Okay, she's excellent. She's a wonderful writer in her own right. So.
0: And are you working on something currently? I am. Tell can can, you want to tell us about that? I can tell you. It takes place in Hollywood from
1: 1930 to 1935, and at the heart, it's it's a romance, sort of. It's a historical, obviously. Um, It's it's boy meets a girl, they should be together, but they won't be for quite some time, and there are all sorts of interesting reasons
0: why, that including uh, different paths. That sounds fun. Now, you you didn't choose writing full-time initially. You've had other careers. Be, you've worked <laughs> as an attorney, and you've worked, what, as a singer? Is that right? I did. So That's tell us a little bit philosophy. about that, and tell us about how you came to write full-time.
1: I always... Love to write. I wrote as a kid. I used to write early fan fiction. This is going to tell you how old I am. Lost in space. I wrote fan fiction. <laughs> I could hardly write. I will say that. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> terrible, like first grade fan fiction. But, yeah, yeah. but you know, um, the problem with writing, obviously, as you're as you're growing up, is it doesn't support you very well. Yeah. I do have a history degree uh, at an English minor. Um, all you can do with those is go to law school, pretty right, much, right. unless you she want to teach. Yeah. So I went to law school. I did practice a bit. I stopped because I uh, I wanted to be home with my kids, mm-hmm. and it, it was law was not conducive. And at that point, that's when I started thinking, well, I'm home. Let's write which any mother will laugh hysterically because right. you know how difficult you know how that is. is. Exactly. So you're up
0: at five.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you're writing like gibberish in between. <laughs> you're right. But that's when I started. I did. I sang with the band even after I had the girls, which was great. Um, what kind of
0: music was it? Oh, well, have you
1: seen The Wedding Singer? There's <laughs> a lot of that. But a lot of big events too oh, in Baltimore. Fine, yeah. I did dinner theater which was fun I did a lot of that I did some performing with my daughters who each have a musical theater degree oh, um, lovely!
0: it was great it was oh, a lot so of fun yeah so y- you then determined that you you had a manuscript tell us I love the stories of how you you first got published so, t- so tell us tell us how you first got published
1: My very first book was called Angel Cafe, and it took place in Baltimore, and I loved that book. And your first book is always an eye-opener. It's like a reality check. Sure. So Angel Cafe was a book that nobody knew what to do with. It was the sort of book that every response was, oh, my God, I love this, but I can't sell this. Yeah. And what happened, I was first published by Simon & Schuster, Mm -hmm. uh, but I wouldn't have been except that my agent, who was with Paraview, Literary at that time, Paraview and Simon and Schuster made an arrangement where Paraview Pocket became part of uh, Simon see. and Schuster, oh, an okay. imprint.
0: I got it. Whereupon
1: my agent said, "I can't represent you. This is a conflict of interest." So I was lucky enough that they thought what I had written was perfect for their first title.
0: So that's how I fell into that. That's interesting. Now I often ask writers to talk to me as a reader. So here's the question. What was the last book you had a conversation about, and what did you say? <sighs> had a conversation about.
1: Well, it may not fit the mold because. <laughs> The last book I actually had a conversation about was Miss Manners. Okay, tell us about that. <laughs> what did you say? How did it come up? I love Judith Martin. I, I do. She's awesome. And I'm one of those obnoxious people who reads Miss Manners and points things out. So, Oh. It comes up with, do you know how that used to be? That used to be blah blah blah. It's like, don't invite me to a party. <laughs> so I would say that's the last one I had a conversation about. Um, I'm in the middle of research, so what I'm currently reading I may or may not use. I can't remember the title, and that's horrible. It is a book about ho- real history and how Hollywood depicts history. Oh. And I just I just love stuff like that. Yes. Uh, historical, social science stuff. Yeah. It, that's got my name all over it. So that's what I'm reading now.
0: Oh, that sounds very interesting. Now, if you were to recommend a book to a 13-year-old boy, and I use it to, to sort of be the stereotypical reluctant reader. So, if you had to sort of try to entice a, re- a young reluctant reader, what would you what would you suggest?
1: I think that's hard because readers are so individual in what might pull them, I, and I have daughters, so <laughs> I, I I know of the boys. I know that fantasy seems to be mm-hmm. big. Mm-hmm. That it. it it's Harry Potter. It's everything that came after, and I am really at a loss as to what came after because I, I don't have any thirteen-year-old right. boys.
0: Yeah. You don't travel in those circles.
1: I don't, and I also. But I, I would say as a gen- generic answer, I think you need to see what this boy is interested in.
0: Yeah, what he's exactly. doing, and
1: follow that lead. Yeah, let him lead you. Right.
0: Then Google the hell out of it. <laughs> There's your research coming back <laughs> to you. That's it. That's it. Back to haunt us Now, how has the publishing experience been? Like, what, what do you find? This is your third book. You're now with HarperCollins. What do you find is, is the most surprising aspect of being published by a large traditional trade publisher in 2015?
1: My two experiences could not be more different because uh, so. I was kind of a stepchild. I mean, it was, it yeah, was, that, exciting, yeah, was a very specific situation. But it was very yeah. different. Yeah. I'm loving this. (laughs) Everybody's been fabulous. uh, Amanda Bergeron is my uh, editor, and she could not be more positive, more enthusiastic, but even better, I'm never in the dark. Yeah. And that inspires me as it does anybody when you feel like you're valuable in some way you want to give it your best shot yeah so I'm having a blast I'm going to ride it as long as I can
0: yeah that's good yeah to, to sort of know that you're on a team the team is wonderful yeah, you're sort of you don't want to let anybody down so you're pulling you're pulling that's right. for everybody right that's right yeah that's interesting and and what what's the most challenging thing? Because I, I I when I ask this question, I very often say, okay, I'm going to talk to you as a writer, or as a reader, and then as someone being published. And they say that's very interesting because it's so different. You know, the whole publishing process is such a different experience than than the writing process. So, what would you say is the most challenging aspect of it?
1: I would say the most challenging aspect is being aware of how difficult it is to publish a book and have a book be known. Yeah. You could write the best book in the world, but if nobody knows what it is. So you're aware of what marketing has to happen and what business decisions need to be made, but you have very little control over yeah. that. And there's a point where you have to kiss it off, let it go, yeah. and assume that, that the marketing team will do what they can for it and that somebody somewhere will help set off a word of mouth campaign, that it was worth it, that what you did was worthy of that kind of attention
0: and it isn't always I'm not gonna lie right. we hope it is right but it's a tough world out there <laughs> well from what I've seen I I, I looked at um, the response on Goodreads to Newport and it was consistently you know star 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 stars so they're they're excited so that's I I think you stand a very good chance. Well, I'm excited, so I'm hoping everyone else has the same experience. (laughs) Good. All right, my final question, it's a little bit of a cliche, I don't care, I ask it anyway. Were you to be banished to a desert island? (laughs) And you get three, you get three books. Oh, man. I know. And this
1: manners isn't worth it in a desert island, there's nobody else. That's right, that's true. Okay. (laughs)
0: That's one of your favorites you're going to leave behind.
1: Well, I would suspect I need comfort reading at that point, and I would probably turn back to some of the books that excited me about history in the first place. Um, and those are there are two children's young adult books, a couple that I loved. I loved Peggy Bacon wrote a book called *The Nine Lives of Opalina*, about an enchanted cat with nine historical lives. She shows up at different oh historical goodness. periods. I loved this that This is what book.
0: got you started. Yes. How old were you when you read that? Do I must have been
1: maybe in fourth grade.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: I loved it. Then when I was a little older, I read a book called Lark by Sally Watson. It took place during the Reformation in England. And these are the books that made me want to write historical fiction. I, was, I could be in that world for hours just reading, reading, reading. And the last one was when I was a little older. It was Green Darkness by Anya Seton. And I, I guess on a desert island, it doesn't matter how old they are. So, yeah. <laughs> but they just—they got my imagination going. really I just love them.
0: That is so neat because you, you can see it. You can see a direct line to your reading yes. then, and your writing now. That's so fascinating.
1: Yes, and all the different historical periods were just—I just, just love that stuff.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for Newport. It's such a great read. I, I, I enjoyed it very much. I'm going to recommend it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, and thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.